So we previously <clears throat> had taken time to walk through some key passages on the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. We heard from Josh Irby on Galatians 3, and then we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Then we had the privilege to hear from Psalm 67. Brian Stock helped to unpack that for us. And then we heard from Colossians 4 from Steve Robertson. And all of this, I hope you're seeing, is very interconnected. Uh, some of it was intentional. Some of it has just been providential. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, so that brings us to this text, this Isaiah 1 text. So as I was praying through what I would preach this morning, um, it, this really stood out to me because I think it helps sum up a lot of things. What we need to know about the context is that Isaiah is coming to preach to the nation of Israel, to, to a group of people who had been given a calling in the Abrahamic covenant, right? Remember, what's the calling? What are we to be? priesthood to all nations, thereby blessing them in the name of the Father. And so, so we have a calling. They have a calling. And what were they doing with their calling around about 800 B.C.? If you know anything about your history, not much at all. In fact, it had gotten so bad that they were even mistreating their own flesh and blood. They were mistreating the widow and the orphan, which is, by the way, the canary in the coal mine all throughout Scripture. If I want to know exactly where your heart is, all I have to do is look at how you treat the marginalized, how you think about the marginalized. That'll tell me everything I need to know about your theology. And so, so God in great grace sees that the, the nation of Israel is coming apart at the seams. It's two kingdoms at this point. The northern kingdom has yet to be carried away. The southern kingdom won't be carried away for another 200 some odd years. And so this, you've got to understand, is a gracious confrontation. See, we, in our culture, we think that confrontation is a bad thing. We think that when, whenever someone talks to us like they're our, they're our daddy, that, that we, we you don't talk to me like that. You ain't my daddy. In fact, I remember one time as an elder hanging up on the pastor, and the last thing I said to him is, you don't talk to me like that. Well, you're not my daddy. And he was gracious enough to let me stay on as an elder and not get rid of me. Uh, and we're still great friends to this day. And he still says, I'm not your daddy. Uh, and so, uh, so we have this certain attitude that we don't like confrontation. We don't like somebody trying to get up in our kitchen, our grill, and talk to us about what we should and should not be doing. Who do you think you are? I'm an American. And so, uh, so we, a text like this, we like to leave it in the Old Testament. Let's just talk about grace and about Jesus. You can't talk about grace and Jesus and not talk about a text like this. You can't. And how do we know that Jesus is in legion with probably what we're about to hear? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 25, talks so much about how we treat the marginalized and the poor. Remember what he said when he said, that which you do to the least of these, you do it unto whom? Christ himself. That should not be anything that we try to make it anything other than what exactly it says. And so here we have this wonderful and gracious confrontation where the prophet Isaiah in great humility is going to come and say some really hard things to the nation of Israel because God loves them and wants them to walk in what was intended for them to walk in, which is to be his image bearers and to reflect his character in this world. You know, that's why we were created, by the way. And whose image are you being transformed? 
Christ. Who does Christ reflect in this world according to Hebrews 1, according to John 1, according to 2 Corinthians 4? He is imaging the Father. Not that the Father had uh, short, closely cropped hair and olive skin. No, the Father is love. The Father is just. The Father is mercy. The Father is care for the poor. The Father is, is all of that. Grace. All of it. And Jesus is the embodiment, the incarnation of all of that. And you and I, if we are in Christ, are being transformed into that image. And that should move us. But it oftentimes doesn't even flick the needle. And I am guilty. And so the prophet's coming to us too. So before we jump into what the prophet says, let me ask you a question because this is crucial. Because if you don't know the answer to this question, we're in trouble. What best reflects outwardly our, your relationship with God? Is, there no, is, is it all inward? Is, is your religion a private thing? Should we not talk about religion and politics and our culture? Hasn't that gotten us a, 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 a long way? Hasn't that been helpful? No, your religion is not a private thing. In fact, you're not hiding anything. You're telling everybody what you believe every single day with how you treat people, how you love your neighbor, how, how you talk about, engage, or share at all Christ with anyone or no one. See, I know everything I need to know about you by how you treat those who serve, how you treat our volunteers here. I, I know, I can tell what's going on in your heart. How you, if we bring up the poor, if we bring up issues of justice, how you start immediately kind of backpedaling, going, oh, it sounds like social justice. Cameron's losing sight of the gospel, or it's coming into clear view. You will never hear me talk about justice divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is never what I mean. And if you sense that I'm sliding in that way, confront me in grace. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the very thing that Jesus died for was so that those who did not have would have. The last would be first and the least of these would be associated with him. I'm just quoting scripture. And so what, what is it that best reflects outwardly your inward religion and what is being reflected outward? See, you don't want anybody else to judge you, which is all cool in the gang, but are you judging you? Are you asking what the psalmist asks in Psalm 139? Show me my anxieties, Lord. Show me my darkness. Show me where I fail to image you. Are you praying that at least? Are you taking time at any point in your day to reflect on how you have engaged and treated other people? Are you quicker to justify you and your actions? Because if you're always doing that, something's wrong. Ain't no way you're always right, despite your best of attempts. So if you aren't even assessing you, then how would you know? So it is very important that we create space within our Christian lives where we are regularly assessing, am I bearing the image? And if so, how? And it looks different for different people, so don't hear me flatten this or two-dimensionalize this because we each have different gifts, right? How my wife lives out her, the truth of the gospel is very different than I. She's not near as loud as I am about it. She's not nearly, there's certain things that move her that don't necessarily move me in terms of justice. 
We went to see the movie Spotlight, if you're familiar with the story. It's the group at the Boston Globe who broke the story on the sex scandal among Catholic priests in Boston. When the movie ended, I was heaving, like ugly cry for a man, ugly cry for a woman, ugly cry for any, any object. Uh, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. I was so angry. Susan wasn't. That doesn't mean she doesn't care about it, but, but what got me was not what got her about it. We're just different wired. So we have different passions in this, and there's plenty of justice issues to go around, by the way. What got me so much in that movie Spotlight is one statement that one of the young men, which, by the way, the majority of victims were poor, which makes me really angry. And he said this. He said that the priest was supposed to be a representative of God. In fact, the priest, in some sense, was God. So what did he just say? It is God who molested me. I just, I broke. That should not be said of the Lord our God because that is not who he is and he ought not be talked about like that or represented like that. And it made me want to do violence, which is not holy, by the way. But it made me want to change things. And you too ought to have things that move you. There ought to be things you care about. There ought to be issues that, that get into your bones in which you can bear the image of God. And that's why we here at Christ Community don't try to narrow what you can do. In fact, we've tried to fling wide the gates and say, whatever it is you want to do, we will equip you, the saints. I'm utterly uninterested in being the activities director on the cruise line of your Christian life. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to set you free and help you walk in that ministry. So we want... For you to do what you are passionate about and desirous about, but it should be something. Should be something. So you have to assess that. Listen to what Michael Williams says. In far as the curse is found, the covenant story of redemption, he says, Israel's corruption of worship and rampant social injustice violates all that Israel's history was designed to make of them. Yahweh had intended Israel to exemplify his character in witness to the nations. Outwardly, you should be exemplifying some of the character of who God is. And if you're confused about what the character of God is, a great passage to memorize is Exodus 34, 5 through 7. We preached it here before. I commend that passage to you, that you would study it and know all that the Lord is, long-suffering, loving, kind, merciful, forgiving to thousands and justs. We should reflect in some part those things on a regular basis. Doesn't, are we going to do it perfectly? <laughs> no. No, not at all, in fact. But yet we ought to try in some measure to have some sort of reflection of him in this world for the life of the world. That being said, let's turn to the text and hear what the prophet has to say to us. We'll read verses 9 through 15. This is the diagnosis. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we, have, we sh should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you 
this trampling of my courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now that's the diagnosis. And that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? To be called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what does that mean? Parents, I'm not going to go into great detail, so that's safe, I think, overall. Sodom and Gomorrah had, had so descended into selfishness that they were willing to destroy each other for any purpose possible. Anybody that would visit through Sodom and Gomorrah, they were to be used in a consumeristic fashion. They were a product to be consumed. And oftentimes, if you had passed through Sodom and Gomorrah, you would be consumed in toto, nothing left of you. And so Sodom and Gomorrah had so turned in upon itself and become such a wretched and foul place, if you remember, God judged it significantly. In fact, he burned it flat to the ground so that nothing was left by sulfur and fire. And so here the prophet says something very gracious. He said, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, what does that tell you? That God in his sovereignty always preserves a remnant. The prophet says, if you had been left to your own devices, you would have become that which is worthy of destruction alone. You would have destroyed yourselves if the Lord let it go on. Instead, he did it sooner so that you couldn't radiate out to other people. And so the Lord preserves a remnant. That's first off. Notice that. While you may bristle at being called Sodom and Gomorrah, notice what he says. First, I have preserved you and not let you become what you would become left to your own devices. And then the prophet turns and says to you, Sodom, and to you, Gomorrah, yet another warning. He says, it's not me who is speaking to you. I'm speaking to you from the word of the Lord. So he's making it clear. I didn't just make this up, guys. I'm coming representing one who is trying to tell you something. And then he attacks their worship. And, and this is really interesting, so we've got to be careful here. Is God unhappy with their cultic practice? Does he not like what they're doing? No, he doesn't have a, He came up with it. He's the one who told them in Leviticus to offer sacrifices. He's the one who set the Sabbath in place. The festivals, the new moons, all of that, the Lord is the one who put it in place. He doesn't have an issue with that, what he has an issue with is the heart that comes to practice those things. What he has an issue with is the fact that the people of Israel have come to view him as a cosmic candy machine to be satisfied so that he would leave them alone so they could do whatever they wanted. Does this story sound familiar at all? Tower of Babel? Job? Who talked and talked and talked about this is not a mechanistic religion? God is not something that you will satisfy with a little bit of a pitiable offering. He is not sitting up there going, man, I, I just, I really could use the blood of about 10 goats right now. I, the creator of the universe, who have everything, I could use the blood of 10 goats. That'd be awesome. Maybe a cut up turtle dove. That'd be great. That's not what he's doing. Why do we treat him as if that's what he's doing? And some of us, 
are still doing it. As if God was up there wringing his hands that if you didn't show up here today, oh man, oh God was going to be disappointed because somebody didn't show up on Sunday and fill that chair. Give that little bit of money, sacrificially hurt so bad. Now that's not it. What matters is the heart, which is why we are always trying to help prepare you for worship on Sunday. This is why we give the devotionals. This is why we send out the confessions of sin. This is why we send out anytime there's the Lord's Supper. These things that represent the grace of the Lord our God. The means of grace to you is to help you prepare your heart. See, our worship should be a a significant picture of what is going on in our heart. And I want you to know it is. You think you're hiding it, but you're not. You're not. And in fact, you're not hiding it from the person who it most concerns, which is the Lord God himself who can see into your inner being. See, it was their worship that should have resulted in some sort of ethical outworking. It was their repentance that should have led them to offer sacrifices, not the other way around. See, we see this all throughout Scripture because people seem to think that it's just kind of a, God set up this stuff so that we could do whatever we wanted and just offer a few sacrifices and we're golden, right? Well, if we were to turn to Numbers 15, 27 through 31, what we would see is that God says, oh, but no. You who offer uh, uh, an offering and yet you sin with a high hand, you are set for destruction. I will not receive your offering. Now, what does it mean to sin with a high hand? That's pretty important because you don't want to do that. And are you going to stumble and do that? No. Sinning with a high hand means that you're saying, I don't give a rip what God says. I'm going to do this exactly the way I want to do it. And as far as I'm concerned, I'll give God his little pittance and I'm right back on the hamster wheel. I'll do exactly as I please. The same thing is true when you read in Matthew 7, that most troubling passage where it says that they, they come before Jesus and say, look at all that we did in your name. That should buy us something, shouldn't it? And he says, no, it buys you nothing. Depart from me. I never knew you. And we, break, we bristle at them. We're like, whoa, bro, calm down. I thought this was about Grace. It's cool out, man. This, they tried, right? Trying's good enough, isn't it? And yet we have this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 where it says, no, no, you're, you're trying. It's not it. You're crucifying Christ again to an open shame. And we have Hebrews 10 where it says, no, no, no. No, you, you, you don't get to decide what is, what is worthy of the Lord. You don't get to decide what he declares as adequate because you are trampling underfoot the very blood of Christ with the way in which you are living. Now, what should, that shouldn't terrify us to the point that we don't come near the Lord because that's not the cure. What it should do is cause us to want to assess and look into why we do what we do. And are we sitting with a high hand? Are we essentially saying that Christ just died so I can do whatever I please and have a deathbed conversion? No, you don't get to live as you please. You were created by a creator who determined who and what you are. We act as if this is some sort of optional set of things. It's not. You, only, you actually only succeed when you are faithful. Not perfect. 
You only succeed when you recognize that the Lord has granted you grace and forgives your sin, the sin of a broken and a contrite heart, Psalm 51, 17. He doesn't want your bare offering. That's why it says, did you, did you read 1 Chronicles 29? That the fact they gave willfully... It's a beautiful thing. Paul picks up the same thing. 2 Corinthians 8, we preached on that here before. God loves a cheerful giver. I'd rather you not give if you're going to set your jaw and be all upset about it and act like you've done something grand. Keep it in your pocket. It'd be better for you. And so here he's saying, what makes you think that I'm sitting around longing for blood? What's this trampling of my courts that I hear? I don't want any of this stuff from you. I'm not mechanistic. What I'm looking for is relationship. This is not a plug-and-play religion. You're not going to keep me satisfied at the back of the universe when what I long for is to be near you, my people. I long to be near you as father, but I will come near you as judge if necessary. And so he's giving them the diagnosis. He's saying, don't worship this way. I am not to be controlled. I am not to be appeased. I am to be related to. And your religion should result in, your worship should have a result. As I was thinking about this, so often kind of how we think about it is, is that we often think about God being like us instead of recognizing that it is we who should be more like God. And we do it in some practical ways, right? Uh, you guys are familiar with the five love languages? Uh, Gary Smalley, all the marriage stuff. So when Susan and I were first married, we did that, and we discovered that what I was doing is to her was what I wanted, and what she was doing to me is what she wanted, and that was causing a great bit of stress between us. Now, this is a, an inadequate example to us and God, by the way, but it helps make the point that we struggle with this. Denominations are much the same way, right? So, so Presbyterians, if we were to look at the Trinity, it'd be God in all capital letters, Right? Jesus, first letter, capital. Holy Spirit is somewhere way over here, barely seen. Pentecostals, God would have the first letter, capital. Jesus would have the first letter, capital. But the Holy Spirit, there'd be exclamation points. There'd be underlining. It would explode off the page. Baptists, God might be capitalized. Jesus is going to be in all caps, right? And the Holy Spirit's probably a little smaller off to the side here as well. What's interesting is where you would fit into any one of those denominations, the me part. In Presbyterianism, me is all the way down there with the Holy Spirit. You're, you don't matter. You're totally depraved, you piece of trash. And then, there's, and then as far as Pentecostals are concerned, me would be in all caps with exclamation points and underlined. And Baptist, me would at least be capitalized. And so we need to recognize that even in how we practice our religion, we are oftentimes confessing, no, this is what I think God is like because it suits me. Right? This fits me. This is why I go to this church or I do this thing because I think that that's the God who is most like me. That's dangerous, isn't it? We should always be reforming and critiquing and asking, are we being more like God? Especially on issues like justice, where justice also finds itself in the Presbyterian church way down in that bottom corner in most churches. That's not to characterize all of them because some of them have it in all caps and are doing awesome. I'd like to be an all caps church on all of the Trinity and justice and us. 
So we have to recognize our inherent weakness in this regard. We do this all the time. We want everybody to think like us. That's why we can't conceive. How could you vote for? Ugh. Right? And so here God is saying, I don't care about all that stuff. I'm talking to you about me and me loving you. And I want you to be like me. And so next, he's going to tell us what the prescription is, what we should look like. But before we get there, listen to what John Oswald says about this passage. He says, religious actions were to be a symbol of the heart condition. If the heart was not in an obedient and submissive posture before God, then all the sacrifices in the world would accomplish nothing. That's true for your worship as well, by the way. So why did God require these sacrifices? Because we humans need a way of symbolizing spiritual realities. We need to see it writ large. We need the Lord's table. We need baptism. We need corporate worship. We need to sing songs. We need to hear the word prayed, read, sung, every which way, sermonized. We need to hear it all the ways we can because otherwise we forget. So what is the purpose of your various religious activities? Why, do we, why are you doing this? I'm okay with if you say, I don't know. My, my, somebody made me come. I didn't have a choice. I'm 13. I can't drive yet. <laughs> Better believe I'd go somewhere else. It's more exciting than you are. <laughs> okay. I hope they preach Jesus. Why are you doing this? Really? I mean, we really need to think about why do we do this? And even more important, how does your worship here at Christ Community impact how you live? Let, so listen to me. If what we do here is having no effect on how you live, go find another church that will get you out of bed on Sunday morning and make you live different Monday through Saturday. I know, I didn't approve that by the elders. They're probably thinking, oh, God said that different. But no, I genuinely care for your flourishing in the createdness of who you are, every single one of you. And if this church doesn't do that for you, I will help you find one that does if you want my help. Or we can talk about why there's a gap between the worship that we do here and how you live, and we can do some discipleship in that interim as well. You don't have to automatically leave. But most of you won't do the second. So go find what will actually move you to bear the image of the Lord your God. That's what this is for. Don't bear this torturous thing that we do called worship if it is torturous to you. Let's look back at the text, verses 16 and 17. Now he's going to give us the prescription. Isaiah says from the Lord, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So did he just say you could save yourselves? Did he just say go baptize yourself? No, this is language that is used of the high priest before he goes into the holy of holies. Remember, if you're coming into the presence of the Lord, there needs to be a certain amount of humility and repentance lest you be consumed and die. So what he's doing is he's saying, prepare to come before me. Wash yourselves. Repent. 
Repent of what you are doing, recognizing that your worship is insufficient and it is selfish and it is wrong at heart, not in praxis. And so, repent of those things because I'm preparing to come to you. That's the grace of the Lord our God that he calls us to repentance. And notice, he says, the evidence of your repentance ought to be these things that you would seek to do good. There ought to be evidence of repentance just because you say it. You know, it's like Susan and I used to talk about. Um, I used the right words. She said, yeah, but it's all in the tone. Because I would sometimes say, congratulations, I'm sorry. Is that, is that sufficient? <laughs> no, it is not. Yes, she's a saint. And there's a special house in heaven that I won't get to live in. <laughs> I wouldn't be in the same neighborhood, I don't think. So. Uh, but, but it is. It's, there should be an outward manifestation. Something ought to change. So stop doing evil. Stop doing the same stuff you've been doing and going, oh, but I plead the blood. I plead the blood. Yeah, I messed up again. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. But I'm so sorry. Sinning with a high hand. It ought to change. Your repentance is powerful. It ought to change something. Woe be unto us that we accept so ghettoized a religion. He's saying, you ought to show justice because my heart is for the weak and the poor. And think about all of the imagery in Scripture, how we are described as sons and daughters. We were described as orphans. We were described as widowed. We are described as the bride. This is why God again and again and again says, how you treat them reflects your understanding of how I have treated you. You were the orphan. You were the widow. I came to you. I took you as my child. I took you as my bride. You should be doing the same thing in this world. It's not just spiritual. It's tangible. So listen to what Barry Webb, who's an Australian scholar, says of this passage. He says, Worship had been divorced from justice. And the fatherless and the widow had become the chief victims. Such disregard for justice was a fundamental violation of the Sinai covenant for which no amount of cultic observance could compensate. The exodus itself had flowed out of God's concern for the oppressed and from the very beginning had demanded that his people should have special concern for the poor and defenseless among them. Furthermore, it is a requirement which has been intensified rather than diminished under the new covenant within which we ourselves now stand. The cross places us under a far greater obligation to love than the exodus ever could. Do you hear what Barry just said? As only those jerky Australians can say. He just said, it's even stronger to you under Christ, who says, by the way, in Matthew 25, he will divide the sheep from the goats based on this very fact. Because he knows that's the evidence of your heart. If you would treat the poor and the, and the marginalized as if they were not needed, let me tell you who your theological bedfellows are. Anne Rand. Anne Rand, if you know anything about Fountainhead, if you know anything about her philosophy, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you can't contribute, you need to be gotten rid of. Mm, okay, Nazi Germany thought that was a great idea, by the way. 
Also, Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, who, who are the ones who put forth eugenics. Do you know what eugenics are? And do you know who eugenics were uniquely used on? Not just the poor, but African Americans in our country. It's often been said the most dangerous place in all of the world for a black male is the womb. Because abortions and things of that nature are done at such a high rate in that community. So is that who you're, is that who you want to get up next to with how you live? A disregard for the poor? A complete, you know, again, I get it. I've, I've worked in this sector. It is hard. And yes, at times it feels like there is nothing we can do to change it. And that is exactly where the gospel comes in. Yes, there is nothing you can do to change it. But in the gospel, you can see things change for generations in a way that we could never in our Herculean effort make happen. And all we do when we treat the poor the way that we often do is we actually diminish our own humanity. We make ourselves far less human. Trust me. So, is your love and care for the marginalized reflective of God's example and mandate? Hey, this is not optional, by the way. I know we like to think it is. I wish it was, to be honest with you, personally, but it's not. And remember, don't let this fall on you as a singular individual. How are we as a church doing this first, right? So don't, don't think you've got to rush out and change the world by yourself, because you don't. If you can, that's great. But we're in this together. And remember all the good things that we looked at we're, that we're doing in the Great Commission, the ways we are, in fact, loving the poor and the widow. Yes, there's more that we could do, and that's why we present the opportunities that we do. But how about you in your heart? Does your heart reflect the Father? Because this is his heart. And if you think it's not, please come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. And if you're right, I'll recant publicly but you're going to have a hard time being right. Let's turn back to the text. Finish it out. Verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are, like red, they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, notice this. Who came to whom here, by the way? The people went running to God because they knew they were wrong, right? No. No. The Lord comes to them. He gives them the diagnosis. He gives them the prescription. And now he is offering them the cure. He says, come. Come, let us reason together. I, I have come to you. And, and as you are repentant, you will be washed not just outside, but inside as well. The whole of you will be transformed. But if you don't, I will be perfectly just in destroying you. I don't like the sound of that either. And it ought to bother us because we ought to not want that for anyone, by the way. None of us should take pride in judgment. As Spurgeon says, we ought to have tears in our eyes when we speak of hell. So here, the Lord is offering for the curse to be lifted, for them to be made new again, for their worship to actually become something that changes the world. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like that we cared more about the result than whether or not we got the song in the right key? 
or why, whether or not we didn't sing that particular song or whether or not we had a certain style of musicianship or whether or not Cameron left his microphone during that first song. Yes, I did. I don't know how it turned out. Um, you guys didn't leave, so it was, it was probably okay. Uh, we, let's, not, let's fight about what matters. I have yet to have someone come to me in any of my church experience and say, hey, we aren't reflective enough of justice. I've heard all kind of other stuff, but not that. And that bothers me. We don't, we don't evangelize enough. We don't love people enough. I don't really hear that a whole lot. No, we're perfectly happy with kind of what we are. We're just constantly kind of trying to tweak for comfort. Where God says, no, your worship ought to change the world. Your worship ought to be for the life of the world. Your worship ought to be what causes you to get up and go out into a fallen world and believe and hope that something could change. If that were true of us, amen. Amen. Hear what Mr. Haddon Spurgeon says, Charles, that is. It is God who comes seeking man. The offended one is first in the effort to make up the quarrel. It is he who says, come now and let us reason together. He proposes to confer with man about the question in dispute. Admire much the freeness of God's mercy that after you have transgressed against him and provoked him again and again, he still hesitates to hurl the thunderbolts of his justice at you. Instead thereof, he invites you to talk with him as to the cause of your quarrel, to reason with him about your war against your maker. Who is responsible for redemption and the ability to reflect God's image? Let us not get the cart before the horse here. Who's responsible? God alone is. Who came up with the Abrahamic covenant? God alone did. Who made sure that it would be fulfilled? God alone did. So don't rush out and think you're going to do justice and make God happy just to appease Him. You are doing the same thing you would do with your bad worship and sacrifice. Instead, recognize that God is inviting you into something that he will equip you for in full so that you can see the beauty of all that is life in him. Amen? So what do we learn from this passage? <laughs> One, God is utterly uninterested in a mechanistic religion that is void of relationship. We saw that in Job over and over and again, didn't we? And we see it again here. He says, I don't want that from you guys. I don't need that. It's ridiculous. I want to be with you. I want you to thrive and flourish in who you were created to be. Secondly, we most reflect the image of God in our care for the marginalized. It is the canary in the coal mine. Third, God provides all that we need to be restored as his image bearers, and I would add to that, and do exactly what he's called us to do. He gives it all to us. There's no Herculean effort on your part. Repent and receive. To close out, H.C. Leopold who is an Old Testament scholar, says this, after the denunciation that had preceded, only complete and total rejection and damnation would seem to have been the logical next step. So he's saying, given their worship, it would make sense that God would have just killed them all and started over. But such is the nature of grace that it exceeds our boldest thoughts. If ever the gospel was expressed in the Old Testament, here is the classical formulation of it. So this morning, if you are in any way struggling with some of the things I've said, maybe you feel like you've been beat up and you're feeling guilty. You should not feel guilty, actually, because God says, come, let us reason together. Be made white as snow. 
But if you're wrestling with that, don't leave here today angry and confused. Grab one of us. We'll have a prayer team in the back that would love to talk with you. You can come grab me. I can take it. I can take it. If you want to keep it 100, I can take it. And so we want to make sure that you're not hearing anything wrong and recognize that it is not individual. You're not going to solve the racial reconciliation problem by yourself. You're not going to solve the poor in Honduras by yourself. You're not. One, you've got to have God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It's got to be Trinitarian. And two, you need to do it within the context of a corporate body. This is not for us to worry about solely as individuals. It is for us to think about collectively. And take time today to ask the Lord to show you, how am I reflecting you in this world? How is, how is the worship here at Christ's community accomplishing that? Let us think about that. Let us work through that as a community of believers who are family and who love each other.